everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. The 2019 protest movement ignited in Baghdad and spread across Iraq's southern provinces, ultimately leading to nearly 600 dead protesters, a cabinet that resigned, and the swearing-in of an interim government that promised early elections to allow the voices of the protesters to be heard through the ballot box. While the government hoped to have the elections in June of this year, they were postponed by the Independent High Electoral Commission, or the IHEC, until October. The voting commenced on Friday, October 8th, with a special vote consisting of Iraq's security forces, internally displaced people, and the incarcerated, voting two days before the general public votes on Sunday, October 10th. Today, I speak with Lahib Hajel, senior Iraq analyst at the International Crisis Group, and Omar al-Nidawi, Iraq analyst and program manager at Enabling Peace in Iraq Center about the elections and what they mean for Iraq and Iraqis. Welcome, Lahib and Omar. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Hassan. Lahib, if I could start with you, please. Earlier this week, you authored a piece titled, Will Iraq's Early Election Solve Its Legitimacy Crisis? Given the levels of fraud that took place during the 2018 elections, do you think the current measures by the IHEC are effective enough to prevent fraud? Thank you. That's a very important question. I think that there are several levels of fraud that we need to think about um, in this framework. One of them is the sort of pre-electoral fraud or the, the fraud that potentially takes place before election day um, that has a lot to do with pressure that uh, political parties um, impose on individuals or groups of people, constituents, in order to go and vote. Um, and that can also include incentives that would normally not be considered fair. So uh, buying people's voices or buying up uh, 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 voting cards, for example, in order to make people, uh, certain groups of people not be able to vote, etc. Um, and then there, I think there is the, the part of the fraud that... Uh, most people come to think of maybe when it comes to the context of the 2018 elections, uh, which happened on election day, which uh, had to do with tampering of uh, the devices that were used in the ballot stations. Um, so manual voting not corresponding to the results of the electronic voting, for example, in certain stations, etc. Um, and I think this part will perhaps have been improved uh, for this election. We also have an extended observation mission of not only the UN, but also uh, the EU and others. And, and this might help prevent part of this, even though I think that we will still see some of it. But overall, there will still be fraud, um, whether it's before uh, or on election day. Uh, but I think in relative terms to the to the previous elections, it might be uh, slightly better this time. Now, Omar, if we can bring you in, um, Lahib just spoke about fraud before and during the elections. If you recall, during the 2018 elections, there was a, a lot of talk of deals being done after election day uh, and former members of IHAC going around and basically asking for money f to 
get people to become MPs. What are the chances or what are the concerns that that sort of fraud would take place this year? Uh, I, I think I agree with uh, a lot of what Lahib said. Uh, fraud in Iraq comes in many uh, shapes and forms. And there are, I think, the pre-electoral or the pre-election day forms of fraud uh, can be as damaging, if not even more damaging to a democratic process, to an electoral process uh, than, you know, post-election fraud. And I think I'd like to remind uh, listeners of one important fact about, you know, elections in Iraq. And it's that a lot of the, if not most of the political parties in Iraq would not be allowed to even run in elections if Iraq's constitution was to be applied correctly. Uh, any p political party that has an armed wing uh, would be barred from participating in elections by, under Iraq's constitution. And I think this is a fundamental flaw in any election that happens in Iraq. It is, however, uh, the has become the norm that this problem is tolerated. Uh, are we going to see the same kind of irregularities uh, post-elections that we saw in 2018? I think um, I agree that the uh, increase in international monitoring, the increased involvement of the of UNAMI and the EU in, in uh, tracking the uh, proceedings of the elections, um, and I think the embarrassment of the 2018 election will probably reduce the chances for uh, for that kind of fraud. But at the same time, I think the combination of the uh, you know unfair tactics that uh, that a lot of Iraq's political parties um, have used you know before election day and they will continue to use you know on Sunday uh, will uh, I think will will undermine the much of the credibility of the of the process. Did did I answer the question, or did I, or do you think there's a part that you want me to go back to? No, I I definitely think you answered the question, but it it definitely raised the question in my mind, uh, and took me back to 2005 and 2006, and um, I I agree completely that if the Iraqi Constitution were applied correctly, uh, a lot of the current blocks, parties that are running wouldn't wouldn't be uh, eligible to run. However, it, it takes me back, you know, 15, 16 years when I remember the international community, specifically uh, the United States, really trying to uh, make Iraqi elections legitimate and trying to get as much uh, participation as possible um, from, you know, from let's be blunt from both the sunnis and the shia you know the the folks that were um had good relations with then al-qaeda and those who had good relations with uh jaysh al-mahdi you know the the sadras so did did we go down a slippery slope then and did it ultimately lead to what we're seeing this year where you know um uh, movement, which is a spinoff of uh, Kata'ib Hezbollah, um, entering into the uh, into politics. So, how do you read this, and and how do you analyze the the twenty twenty one elections and who's entering? Wow, I mean, uh, right now we're we're about to go into the uh, you know a debate about you know the whole U.S. involvement in Iraq and. The legitimacy of the political process, uh, and I don't. I think that rabbit hole is too deep. But uh, 
if I want to say one thing, it is that at the time, in 2005, 2006, there was a uh, you know immense pressure to 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 pull Iraq out of a sectarian bloodbath. You know, violence by uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq, by um, extremist insurgents, by uh, the Mahdi army, by sectarian death squads, was killing thousands of people a day. So there was a need to to or a, you know a lot of pressure to uh, bring everyone into the fold of the political process. Of course, that came at a huge price, and that was the uh, the fact that you know armed groups or political factions with armed groups. Uh, were added into the political process, and let's be, you know, uh, frank here. Uh, there were political parties that, uh, you know, were at the foundation of the political process that had militias, and the, you know, that was they were grandfathered into into the process. So it was not a precedent, but it was a continuation down that slippery slope. It felt necessary at the time to save lives and to put back. Uh, put Iraq back on on the right track, or at least to uh, stop the the bloodshed. Uh, but it was necessarily going to lead to where we are today, and that is, you know, that the political process is dominated, not only infiltrated, dominated by political parties that are in stark violation of Iraq's constitution. I think that's absolutely accurate. Uh, not infiltrated, but dominated. Thank you. Um, Lahi, both you and Omar uh, discussed the role of international observers. Um, how much do you think the role of international observers altogether will play in legitimizing the Iraqi elections? And if this will address concerns of electoral fraud and manipulation. If it does not, what more can be done short of having an outside body run Iraqi elections entirely on our behalf? Well, I think in the end, um, the international community and the observers that we have will legitimize the elections um, because it's in the interest of the international community to have stability in Iraq. And I think that there has been a lot of efforts made pre-elections in order to ensure that there is a, a, a level at least of, of transparency um, and prevention of fraud. What I would hope is that the reports that will come out or the assessments of, of the results are at least going to be honest, even if it's going to give legitimacy to the to the process, um, which I think it will, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how low voter turnout goes in Iraq, right? Because we we have no threshold. Um, the fraud is not going to be assessed to be at the same level set as it was 2018. We still had a legitimization of, of those elections. So, that, so that's probably the most likely outcome that we will have also of this election. But I think for, for the Iraqi popu, the, the average Iraqi, let's say, and for those that have decided not to go to the ballot box this time because they're so disillusioned with the system, uh, having increased observation is important, uh, but it's even more important if, if the assessment is as honest as, as it could possibly be, um, because I think that will also make the, the general population regain some sort of trust in, in the 
democratic process actually being one that they should invest in in the future. Uh, and as we saw during the protests, for example, I think the international community uh, lost a lot of trust because its inability uh, to intervene or protect, etc. Even if this was, um, you know, the demands or the hopes on, on part of the Iraqi streets were not realistic, but this was sort of the perception uh, that it took. So I think um, it will be an important one, but I think that there is not so much more that the international community can do at this time, uh, apart from, from addressing it as, as honestly as possible. Makes sense. And Omar, with everyone fixated on boycotting, I wanted to ask, what do you think motivates voters in this environment and critically what motivates protest-based parties, some of which are running to contest the elections? Well, I think uh, Iraqi voters are diverse in their motivations to whether to go to the, uh, to the ballots or to stay at home. Uh, I think I've talked a lot to, you know, people involved in, uh, in the Tishreen protest movement, in the political parties that have emerged out of the movement. And uh, in the, you, can, you can see two, tr two trends. Uh, and one of them is motivated by the uh, belief or the uh, hope that um, gradual reform is possible. Uh, these people, you know, some would some would uh, characterize them as uh, pragmatists or gradualists. Uh, they know that there is no, uh, or they think that there is no way, there is no avenue for radical change in Iraq, and that um, that radical change in Iraq is neither uh, feasible nor uh, nor peaceful, and therefore uh, they think that. Uh, the best way is is to engage in elections, uh, to engage in politics, to try and uh, gain a small foothold, um, no matter how small, in the uh, inside parliament, in order to try and uh, nudge Iraq, nudge Iraq's political class towards better behavior than than the past, uh, with aided by popular pressure from, uh, you know, perhaps a resumption in 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 in, uh, in protest activity. Uh, after the uh, the election, and let's be uh, clear here, you know I think the elections will lead to a uh, you know the return in large numbers of a representative of the traditional uh, party uh, political parties in Iraq, and this will I think lead to a perhaps uh, protracted government formation process. But there will be a lot of business as usual, and business as usual is not going to be good enough for the average Iraqi. We're going to see a new wave of protests, and that would be an opportunity, I think, for a uh, for the pro-reform uh, representative in parliament, who hopefully will will gain a foothold, uh, to push in that direction. Uh, they uh, could possibly have an opportunity uh, to recreate some of the conditions that we saw in Iraq in 2015, 2016, uh, when there was a lot of, you know, uh, popular pressure for reforms, but there was also a, uh, a political establishment that was interested in, uh, at least, you know, in the, in the form of the prime minister at the time, um, supported by the Najaf clergy that were interested in initiating reforms, but um, you know, they were trying to find the uh, the popular mandate, and they used that popular pressure uh, to, 
you know, push the rest of the political class towards accepting uh, some reforms. You know, remember 2016, the, uh, there was a reduction in the number of ministries. There were efforts to streamline government. Of course, there was a lot of pushback. The hope, I think, is that the future experience will will learn from the past and will build on the the momentum to to um, to push Iraq a little farther towards uh, uh, towards reforms. One thing that was very interesting, and I will ask Omar that you elaborate on this, is the return of protesters to Iraqi streets. Do you, and and given your experience and your discussions with protesters and protest movements, do you think a protracted government formation process will help, hurt, will it delay, will it hasten the protests? Will they wait until a government is formed before returning to the streets or will they just say, to heck with it, it's business as usual with the same old faces, same old parties, we need to come out, we need to pressure them, we need to uh, enact some some sort of reforms and changes? Mm. Well, I mean, uh, uh, predicting, you know, the forecast for protests in Iraq is like predicting uh, the weather in uh, the most challenging uh, meteorological conditions. But there are some indicators. There are some factors that you can evaluate and look at. Um, You know, I think I can't say that there are answers, but there are factors that we can look at and evaluate. Uh, I think the longer a government formation process takes, uh, usually you have... um, more chances for bad actors to exploit the condition. Uh, you'll see more attacks by ISIS. You'll see perhaps militias, uh, you know, uh, exploit the the vacuum to 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 their in, to, to serve their interests. Uh, and you'll see a deterioration in services. Uh, you know, before elections, uh, Iraqi politicians are paving the streets and uh, feeding the hungry and uh, distributing blankets. Once election day has passed, all of that is gone, and people are back to, you know, struggling for 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 daily survival. So I think there will be a, a uh, conditions will be favorable for renewed protests um, if government formation process is you know takes uh, too long. Uh, there's also the uh, issue of you know what it, what that government is going to look like, and I think if. Uh, the, the government, the new government, elevates figures that have been implicated in violence against protesters, then we are going also to see a high likelihood of renewed activity. Uh, one mitigating factor, generally speaking, is weather. Uh, Iraq is more likely to have uh, protests in uh, the hot summer months. So if the government, if the next government uh, sees the light you know, before the end of the spring, then it will probably have a chance to, uh, you know, open dialogue with, with, the, with the people and try to uh, absorb some of the, uh, the anger, some of the resentment, and uh, perhaps uh, demonstrate goodwill to gain a, uh, you know, a grace period, so to speak. Sans, thank you, Omar. Now, uh, Lahib, if we can go back to uh, the factors that motivate. Uh, voters uh, that we discussed just a moment ago. Uh, how do you think these factors will impact voter turnout rates? Which, as you know, is is extremely important because the 2018 election saw officially 44.5% voters turning out and voting. 
uh, unofficially, they were much lower than that. So how would you say these these factors impact voter rates? And and it's, I'm asking you this especially because I know that on Friday you went out and saw some of the uh, polling stations uh, across Baghdad uh, for the special vote that we discussed for the security forces internally displaced and the incarcerated. So the Friday voting is not, um, which is the special voting, is not the best indication for um, what the turnout will be overall, specifically because um, it's mainly security forces that go out to vote uh, on this day. And uh, those are usually incentivized by political parties to do so. And then there is the, uh, also IDPs uh, that are allowed to vote on this day. And for for many reasons of being in displacement, of not having voter cards, they will not turn out in, in any large numbers. And then there is also the smaller group of incarcerated. So I think that the, the Friday turnout uh, will be very high in, in relative terms to the general one on Sunday, but because that is uh, the larger vote, Friday will not be able to offset much of, of that uh, effect, I think. Um, and when it comes to the to the Sunday elections, um, Iraq has a large demographic of youth. Um, that is the age bracket that is the most disillusioned with the democratic and the political process, and they are not likely to turn out in, in significant numbers. Um, the older generation or those that have our, gov- our government employees, um, uh, tribes or, or leaders that, that facilitate uh, voters uh, in their communities based on uh, sort of connections to patronage lines through the parties. These are the groups that are most likely to, to turn out to vote. And then there is, I think, another additional um, uh, positive push for, for, for voter turnout on Sunday, which uh, was the statement by Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani. That's very interesting. Um, Omar Lahib brings up an important point, which is in 2018, uh, Sayyid Sistani's office basically said, if you want to vote, go ahead and vote. You know, there was no incentive uh, either to stay home or to go out. This time around, it's it's been quite different. I, it, it seems like they've learned to lesson from the 2018 mistake and they've come out and said, you know, the only way to reform, the only way to have your voice heard is to go out and vote. It, could you explain and analyze that a little bit for us? Uh, yeah, I think this is the most important, perhaps, question uh, surrounding Iraq's election turnout. Uh, it will decide really, you know, the size of, of win for the for the victors and the, uh, you know, the magnitude of loss for, for those who are not going to make it to parliament. Um, let me put it this way. So recently, uh, my organization conducted a public opinion survey in Iraq, and uh, the numbers are, you know, quite disappointing. Uh, only twenty-three percent of people who responded to our survey said that they think the the election is going to be free and fair, uh, and uh, a lot of people have, you know, have several issues with with elections they either think that there will be fraud you know about 30 percent think there will be going to be it's going to be fraudulent if not actually no more than that uh a lot of people think that they don't have any candidates they can trust uh or that their votes are not going to matter 
you know, I think Ayatollah Sistani's statement is uh, is very significant, but I'm afraid it came may have come a little too late uh, to, you know, to mobilize voters who have decided months ago, months in advance, that they're not going to engage in this political in this you know in this election because they don't think it will change their lives. So I think it will you know encourage them to think they might feel you know, a sense of guilt if they don't uh, go out and vote. But at the end of the day, they're going to have a very hard time deciding who to vote for. If they had lost faith in the political establishment and you have a large number of the, uh, you know, the political actors that emerged out of Shireen, you know, boycotting or, you know, a lot of the names that or or, uh, titles that have been associated with reform have are sitting out the election. Who are they going to vote for? Uh, I think it's gonna, they're going to have a hard time deciding, um, you know, where to give their vote. And you know, I would be concerned that in the absence of information, the pressure of time, that they might revert to the uh, more primordial, you know, ties in deciding who to give their vote for. You know, tribal, uh, you know, sectarian, ident- you know, other ideological factors. I hope not. I think there is a, uh, you know, a growing, uh, you know, sense of secularism within uh, among Iraq's youth, and uh, I think they they care less about these issues. But you know, Iraq's population is very diverse, and uh, things can vary a lot from you know the the college graduated youth in in big cities and between um, you know more um, you know traditional folk in the uh, in, in the countryside. So. Uh, I, I don't really know how how things will shape up, but we will know by Sunday. Well, we're all definitely looking forward to to see how that impacts the uh, the vote. Lahib, uh, Omar just talked about who Iraqis uh, can vote for. I wanted to ask you about how they will vote. Um, since 2005, elections in Iraq have moved from a single district to 18 districts based on the provinces, and now to 83 districts. Do you view this as a positive step towards representation, or are you worried that this will reinforce ethno-sectarian lines in diverse provinces like Baghdad, Diyala, and Kirkuk? I think there's one potential positive side to this new system of uh, single non-transferable votes that we have. Um, and in addition to to the smaller districts, which is that candidates will be closer to their constituencies, uh, which means that in future elections, uh, we could have an effect whereby voters realize that they have the power to replace MPs that uh, perform poorly um, during a, a term. I think that this will take time as kind of a maturity to uh, to take root uh, among Iraqi voters, but this is one uh, potential outcome that we will see. Now, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the system will rid itself of the representation through ethno-sectarian lines that have been uh an integral part since uh, 2003. Um, 
On the other hand, it might in certain areas even uh, reinforce it because this is the main way in which political parties are organized in Iraq. Thank you, Lahib. Now, Ahmad, one result we see from district voting is the removal of coalition leaders from running in elections like Nouri al-Maliki or Ayad Alawi. Now, a person does not have to run in elections in order to be selected as prime minister, as we have seen with the last few prime ministers. How does this affect Iraq's democratization? I ask because people have been calling for a presidential system because it allows for direct vote for a leader, and we are moving away from that. So will this lead to further calls for direct voting of the Iraqi prime minister? I think there there will be more calls for revising the system in Iraq so that people can vote directly for a prime minister. And I think the political parties will, uh, most of the political parties will, will have a strong interest in killing that uh, proposal. The system works because the prime minister, whoever that person is, is going to be uh, weak and beholden to the uh, consensus and balances and the uh, you know how each and every political party that is involved in it is uh, getting their you know what they consider to be their fair share of the of the spoils. Now, a prime minister that is authorized um, and empowered by the people. Now that changes the the uh, the game. That changes the rules of the game, and uh, I uh, am confident that none of Iraq's traditional political parties, or at least most of Iraq's traditional political parties, are going to see that as a uh, direct threat to their ability to maintain the system. Because you know that means that one guy uh, who could be uh, part of or could be co-opted into being part of one pol- other political party, one rival essentially, is going to be able to call out all the shots and potentially marginalize everyone else. And I think that that is something that that is a threat. That's a common threat that's going to bring the uh, you know the political par- parties, the Mohassasa partners, uh, together uh, to protect the system. Interesting. Now, with regards to democratization. Lahib, I wanted to ask you, with Tunisia and Lebanon both regressing in their democratization, what does this election mean for Iraq and the region as a whole? Unfortunately, I don't think that the development in Tunisia and Lebanon will reflect positively in Iraq. And I think especially the Lebanese case is critical uh, because of the similar um, systems in, in Lebanon and Iraq. Um, and I'm thinking especially because both countries have been going through a crisis in the last few years. Now, Iraq has been able to overcome that, uh, partly because it's a rich uh, oil country, um, but its legitimacy crisis remains. And unfortunately, I think the example of what has happened in Lebanon is that despite uh, such a serious deterioration, the political establishment survives. Um And, you know, as a political leaders in Iraq, what do you learn from that? You learn that um, the situation can be much worse uh, before um, their their rule is is threatened or or at risk. It's not to say that I I don't think that um, political leaders in Iraq have 
learned any lessons from from the protests. I think that there has been a realization on part of some political leaders that uh, they have to do things differently. But um, the system and how it's built up doesn't allow for that type of change very easily. So it's not likely to come fast enough for the population, even at the best of political wills, which I don't think exists. Um, and then when it comes to the other question of what does this election mean for the region, I think uh, it is a crucial one in the sense that um, it happens at a time where there is a momentum going on in the region for de-escalation, um, especially uh, between the more powerful countries surrounding Iraq. And Iraq has had a role in that as well in terms of a facilitator um, for uh, for dialogue, uh, as we've seen manifested through the Baghdad Conference, but also through, through other initiatives. So um, hopefully this election, uh, the regional powers will seek to have uh, a balanced government in Iraq um, that that can manage the relations uh, within the region f- for its for its own good and and for others. Interesting, Omar. Are you as uh, optimistic about the upcoming elections for Iraq? It is really hard to say whether one should be optimistic or pessimistic. I think because the there's a very strong likelihood that the the outcome of the elections is going to be rather subtle on day one. Uh, you're probably not going to see much change from what Iraq has seen in the past. Uh, but it is the impact of this election will definitely snowball uh, in one way or the other. And that depends on, I think, you know, a number of things. You have regional uh, geopolitical dynamics. That's one. That's not in, under Iraq's control. But I think there are two, uh, two dynamics that could uh, decide where, you know, where Iraq heads after this election. Uh, I think the first one is, uh, you know, how the you know the representatives of the traditional parties are going to act after the elections are they are they going to act predictably and continue business as usual and ignore the fact that half a million iraqis are entering the workforce every year and that iraq's uh means are simply not keeping up with its needs and this is an unstable an unsustainable situation that is going to eventually lead uh, to economic disaster and political, uh, you know, collapse. So, are they going to, to 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 do something about this? Are they going to to make even the slightest consideration of changing their ways and agreeing to, um, you know, reconsider their ways and to share the country with its people? Uh, I think that's that's a that's a big question, and I don't have a lot of high hopes on this one. Uh, the other factor is how the representatives, as few as they may be, of the uh, of the pro-reform, you know, groups that are going to enter parliament, and I think that some of them there will be some of them. Uh, how are those going to act? Are they going to uh, 
uh, allow themselves to be divided, fragmented, uh, co-opted by the establishment and corrupted by the establishment? Or are they going to uh, come together, coalesce into a, an effective you know, uh, pro-reform opposition group that can, uh, for the first time, you know, offer Iraqis a, uh, you know, the option of political opposition. This is something that you know, I think it's a it's a very foreign concept in Iraq. Political opposition. Every party wants to be part of the government. Uh, every party wants to control a ministry or a government agency to control its appointments, to control its budgets, to control its contracts, and so forth. Uh, I think the idea of a political opposition group is, you know, obviously for that reason is a little bit uh, unappealing because what, what do you get out of it? But it would be transformational, I think, for Iraq if we see a uh, a coalition and of oppositionists emerge in, in parliament. That, I think, would put Iraq on a path of true gradual reform, and that would be phenomenal. Um, possibilities for that, I think, um, are hard to estimate. But again, hopefully we'll see some good signs about that in, uh, you know, after Sunday. Inshallah. Lahib, Omar, thank you so much for your time. We hope that Iraqis can have successful elections, which lead to a parliament that works for Iraq's best interests and those of the people who they represent. There's a lot of work that needs to be done at all branches of government, but let's hope the next 329 parliamentarians up the game and start serving their constituents. That's it for this week's podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care.